Hey guys, Bruce here from Evolve and Play. Today I'm uh, sitting with Simon Thackeray of Ancestral Movement. Um, we just got done with a nine day retreat in the bush outside um, Canberra. Really amazing experience. So I've uh, known Simon uh, at least via the internet for about three years, um, right about since I started Evolve and Play. And his teaching and, and concept is really similar. I'm really excited to have that chance to work with him and to kind of share his thoughts with, uh, with you guys today. Um, so say hi, son. Hi, everyone. Okay. Um, you've done uh, Chinese martial arts for many years, right? Mm -hmm. You've uh, also done capoeira for many, many years. Um, you've spent some time in Asia doing meditation. Lots of time, yeah. Asia. Ten years, right? More or less, yeah. More or less. Yeah. And, uh, and just recently graduated from university, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Should, should have graduated like a good decade ago, but I kept changing, changing what I was studying. And yeah, yeah. But you layered on lots of interesting things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so you really deeply kind of dived into neurobiology, anthropology, ethnography, mm -hmm. um, any other major subjects that were Yeah, like a lot of anatomy. Lot of because I was studying like methods of physical therapy and, and so on. So a lot of anatomy, a lot of physiology. Um, getting into the molecular stuff and genetics and things and immunology nice. and, you know, smatterings of psychology and sociology and so on, a bit of archaeology, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Trying to, this was a broad Well, for me, it's like a, a, free, a big picture of, you know, um, science and then, you know, humanity's place in the, in the, in the big picture of all the other things, you know. So, out of that, you've kind of come up with with ancestral movement as that be your kind of your, your biggest passion, the thing that you're most excited about sharing with the world. Yeah, these these last few years, it's definitely um, become like before. I was teaching more traditional things, like teaching capoeira, teaching Chinese stuff, and teaching yoga, and working as a physical therapist, and doing Chinese medicine, and doing all these things in these different traditions, but all the time I was sort of working on these other things which I wasn't really, didn't have the language yet to tell people about. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of, it came together into what I'm now calling ancestral movement, yeah. So when did that kind of concept coalesce for you? Probably, like at least the, the physical stuff of it, like the, the actual, the movements and the practices and things were, happening, have been happening for like a good 20 years or so, but then probably, I don't know, it was around seven or eight years ago when I sort of, something clicked and I, because you know, I was really into like primate movement to begin with, right? I was doing a couple around Guala and I spent a lot of time in the bush growing up in New Zealand and living in Australia always in anthropology and evolutionary biology and I was just really into this idea of humans as primates and understanding not just movement but psychology and you know mannerisms and just all of all of human behaviour. I was just looking at it through the lens of like a, an amateur primatologist. But then um, then I started to discover other stuff in there and, and realized like something just clicked and I realized ah like it's not like the primate, the primate level. The human level is obviously layered on top of metaphorically 
primate level and then realize that, oh, there's still levels of anatomy and behavior and um, like neural systems that are still remnants of like pre-reptile, pre-primate, like reptile, like fish, like ancient vertebrate patterns in the spinal cord, those sort of things. And I sort of like something clicked and I realized, ah, oh, the whole, there are traces of our entire ancestry still present in, again, not just our anatomy, but our behavior, our social dynamics, our locomotion patterns, and then even our cognitive um, tool set, if you like. Yeah, so that was when I was like, right, okay, it's, it's not just primate ancestry, it's not just recent ancestry, like Paleolithic hunter-gatherers or anything, it's the whole lot. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the things that's been really interesting to me about your concept. It was one of the problems that I had with the paleo community, in a sense. I, you know, I think there's a lot of great stuff that comes out of paleo, yeah. but uh, evolution is messy, mm-hmm. and it doesn't exactly just like throw out everything from the past at some point and create this perfect adaption and then we stop. Like, uh, the blog I used to follow talked about paleo is like a recapitulation of the fall. Right? There's this idea of the fall of, of human beings like from the, uh, from the Garden of Eden. Right. There's this idea that we, we had this point of perfect adaption to the mm-hmm. environment and that all of our nature was determined at that point and that everything that's happened subsequently to that is sort of didn't cause any change mm-hmm. and everything that happened prior to that you know is really not kind of in the horizon so that was one of the things i found really interesting was this uh this time and depth mm-hmm. of the way that you're looking at mm-hmm. i've been particularly interested in post period as well mm-hmm. i'm thinking about how human beings adapt but uh but this deeper time span really interesting mm-hmm. i wanted to ask you kind of how you how you sort of uh, telescope through that lens, right? Mm. You know, three billion years of evolution. Yes. How many years? Yeah, about three billion years of evolution. Oh, right? yeah. um, clearly, er, we cannot exactly go into fully crafting and being mm. all the way in all of these different right. evolutionary elements. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so how do you recognize the mm-hmm. the pieces of those ancestries that have remained really relevant right. that we need to understand and yeah. kind of cultivate them ourselves? Yeah. Um, well, the um, like study of anatomy is super relevant. So if you're working as a physical therapist, you need to understand the anatomy. Or if you're working in movement, then understanding anatomy is really helpful, like the mechanics of the joints and you know the elastic and contractile uh, properties of muscles and tendons and, and so on, and then understanding spinal reflexes and motor control and all that sort of stuff. And then for myself, I've always kind of had this, you know, like I was saying, like looking at primate stuff, and like you look at the anatomy of the human just blatantly as a primate. Um, but then like getting deeper into the comparative anatomy, like comparative vertebrate anatomy or what some people call evolutionary anatomy, where when you understand, when you look at say the, the structure of a shoulder joint and the musculature of a shoulder joint, and then you look at it in a human and you look at it in the other 
apes and other primates and monkeys and then other mammals and then basically all other creatures that have shoulders including reptiles and amphibians and so on you discover that like it's it's this, they have the same structures slightly different sizes and shapes of those structures but the, the muscles are basically the same muscles the joints are the same the bones are the same um, and then you've got this idea of right like shoulders didn't just appear they developed over a certain time period and they developed in a sequence um, starting with like ancient pectoral fins in, in, in fish you know the fish are obviously swimming in this particular way and then it starts to come onto land and things are crawling and climbing and then as mammals start to develop the limbs start to come forwards more rather than sprawled and then they start climbing like this and then eventually you get like the beginnings of bipedalism and then you get you know tool use and then you get humans and so it's like this idea of um, realizing uh, that the current use of shoulders, so just using this example of shoulders, but the current use of shoulders in one particular culture is just a, like a, a very limited view of what a shoulder is or can do. And so you start looking at what do people in different cultures do in the modern world. And you start looking at what did, what did people do in our grandparents' generation. And then you look at like, okay, what did, what do modern hunter-gatherers do? What can we extrapolate from the fossil record of what people were doing, you know, 500,000 years ago, and that sort of thing. And, um, and so there's this idea that, like, that can be useful functionally. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at how babies crawl, and you go, okay, the way a baby uses their arms is, is very similar to how, like, a salamander or, um, you know, a lizard at a certain stage of their development. And that's, like, interesting if you go, right, crawling is, if not essential, it's very useful for shoulder development in humans all the time. But then part of my, um, part of what makes me so passionate about this stuff is getting a richer story of shoulders and every other part of the anatomy, a richer story which which isn't just this, this present moment with no context. It puts it into this context of deep time and, and ancestry of the, 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 the idea and the fact that like countless generations of humans and pre-humans and pre-pre-humans and all of these creatures have fought and lived and died and taken care of each other and gone through all of these diverse habitats in order to bring us here now. And that I wasn't taught to honour that as a child. And going through the process of finding out more of those details and looking at, you know, body hair and nails and teeth and all of these things in us just makes me appreciate this amazing story, you know, that we've we've entered into and here we are. And um and so it's like I kind of, I almost use it when I'm teaching, both teaching myself and also teaching other people, I almost use this anatomical explorations in different environments as a way of teaching the story of evolutionary biology. 
this rich, beautiful story so that then we can start to experience our bodies as being ancient and miraculous and, you know, have this, like, sense of reverence and appreciation for a small amount. But my body has hundreds of millions of years of innate ability. So it's trying to unlock, unlock that. Yeah, so lots of interesting things there. Um, mm. There, you know, this aspect of story and narrative is something that's been really important um, in my teaching recently that you and I have been talking about. Um, and and a couple things within that, a couple things within, within the specific, how, how does the shoulder move within the individual body? Um, you know, I wanted to get really, I wanted to get into this question of like, how do we, Deal with the scale, right? Right. Yeah. And I feel like we didn't, yeah. It didn't quite get into how you because, right. like, when I when I look at your concept, one of the things that comes up for me is like, how do you orient within such a mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. spectrum? Yeah. Like you've talked about. So let's just back up for a second and say, so what what does an ancestral movement encompass for you? Right. So, firstly. People get the impression that when I say ancestral movement, they're like, oh, well, is this an ancestral movement and is this not an ancestral movement? And one of the fundamental points is that obviously, if you think about it, everything we do, we do because of our ancestry. There's no no escaping from ancestry, Mm -hmm. right? So every, you know, the way we use our lips, the way we do everything with our bodies, the way we think, absolutely everything. If you invent something or whatever, it's all based on you know genetics and culture and environment and stuff so so what it encompasses is huge it's a it's a perspective on life right and looking at everything and and looking at the the effect the influence of ancestry on everything social dynamics movement movement dysfunction um eating like the, the kinds of structures we live in, like our relationship with the environment, etc., etc., uh, conflict, all of these things. But then, as a training method, um, I often work with these like, certain fundamental movements, uh, fundamental movements that are fundamental for our species, but then fundamental movements inherent in our anatomy which we happen to share with all of these other species. So lots of fundamental movements involving the use of four limbs. We share with all of the other creatures with four limbs. Some of the more specialized ones we share just with the primates. Some of the even more specialized ones we share just with the tool-using primates. But then some of the more primitive ones we share with reptiles, we share with amphibians, and then once we get into the spine and the central axis of the body, which evolved in water, mm-hmm. right? the spine evolved for swimming, um, and was used like just for swimming for like, I forget how many, like whatever it is, like 150 million years or something. Mm-hmm. Undulatory motions of the spine, we discover when we unlock them, and they're actually very unusual in our society, but much more common in some other cultures around the world, that these fundamental undulations of the spine we share with quadrupedal mammals like 
like cheetahs and horses and goats and like all these other things, but also we share with fish. And then some of them we even share with invertebrates, mm -hmm. which also use what they call sinusoidal undulations for locomotion, and they also use this this one that they call the dorsal dorsoventral undulation. You know, we even share that basic that basic movement, fundamental movement, even with worms, even with tadpoles. In fact, with all creatures that have a segmented body plan. Right, and we still have a segmented body plan. So it's like what I, the way I, the framework in which I present it when I'm, when I'm teaching, if I'm teaching systematically in a workshop or something, is we'll often start with the most primitive movements, like breathing, yeah. and developing this ability to like just start to practice experiencing our bodies as being a breathing bag of mostly water, just like all the other living cells in the world. And then we'll get into like some undulations and realize that these like peristaltic movements and basic undulations that we, we have that in common with all creatures that have a segmented body point. And then you start getting into the spinal column, like what, what, what are the basic movements inherent in the anatomy of the spine? And then we discover that we share them with all other creatures that have a spine. Then on into the limbs, then on into, you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like any, any book of evolutionary biology or human evolution, it will go through these basic sort of layers, like segmented body plan, bilateral body plan, you know, front and the back and the left and right side, and then getting limbs, you know, then getting a spine, then getting limbs, um, then moving in trees, you know, it's like it will go do, 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 do through these basic stages, and we can look at the fundamental movements of each stage and practice them, and then we see um, it's it's a great it's a great framework for training. And it has all of these other implications for the understanding of not just our own ancestry, but shared ancestry with all of these other creatures. Cool. So it's a really beautiful way of articulating sort of the influence of evolution, the actual structure of the body, and how how you know this is. I think it's a really fascinating way of of uh, framing um, how we can kind of think about cultivating the human mood. So the question that I'm sort of trying to dig at is. Uh, Sort of prioritization question. Yeah. Like whenever we take on this big generous new concept, the question is: so, if where, where are the places that are most important to start? Mm. You know, within my own concept of involvement play, I think about uh, you know everything is an expression of the way we can body ball. Mm. The reason that we can do high bar and uneven bars and rings and cetera is yeah. because of our board of yes. yes, because of the way the shoulder and chest yeah. ball. Yeah. In order to allow that. Yeah. Um, but some expressions of that sort of uh, are closer to the root source. Right. And my general my general uh, bias is that those things that are closer to the root source yeah. are are uh, are more fundamentally nutritious for the body, yeah. and that we need them. Yeah. And so the, the interesting question for me is I've, I've really looked much more at the primate, you know, and. and Later human evolution uh, mm. concept. Mm. We did a lot of these final ways. They're really cool at the workshop. And my question is, how much you know? To, to what degree should we be devoted to practicing yeah. like spinal undulations and kind of replicating yeah. this uh, fish or worm or mm -hmm. um, uh, lizard nature of ourselves? Mm. You know, that's layered in there. 
versus things that are a little bit later. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation in a previous podcast with Todd Harbour. We were talking about the shoulders, the, the, the human shoulder is really good throw. Right. It's uniquely good throw. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's an adaption that was built on the fact that the shoulder is good for brachiation. Yeah. It doesn't seem that people need throwing necessarily to have a healthy shoulder. Mm-hmm. They need hanging and swing. Mm-hmm. The throwing is layered on really late. I'm wondering also if, like, uh, as we go further and further back, mm-hmm. if there's a sort of a golden mean zone where mm-hmm. the stuff is the most nutritious for a human being, yeah. and and like how you how you weigh these layers because yeah. it's really difficult to try and, and to do everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I always think like it's good to start at both ends. Yeah. So for sort of basic physical ability and health, the primate stuff is probably in some ways most useful. Yeah. In a general sense, you know, being able to jump and balance, like being able to swing and climb, and then all the partner, partner stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like that primate thing of like we love contact, we love wrestling, we love like rolling over each other and you know playing tag and chasing each other through different environments and obstacles and stuff. Because um, that's the stuff that like if we look at kids again, right? They they play like primates. You yeah. know, it's like that's that's what we've evolved to do in our play. And so that's, you know, obviously um, really important. But then, because in our culture, we've been given or we've come into a culture of really unexpressive spines, and we forget that that's not normal. Mm -hmm. And so, compared to, like, like in Brazil, for example, if you if you investigate the Capoeira and Guala, you get like people doing like all sorts of like really like three dimensional complex movement that's like doesn't appear to be particularly functional. Like almost they're like doing samba kind of stuff while they're playing Capoeira, and then in the more modern Capoeira, you get it's much a bit more like karate, where the where the, the torso is like kind of neutral and looks more like an, how we think of an athlete. Yeah, and um, I think that having that like idea of the sort of neutral spine as normal is really limiting for us in lots of ways. Like, it's really limiting for us in our physical expression, our emotional expression, you know, um, in our dance and, and all these other things. And also, it creates this image of the human body that's very different from the bodies of all the other animals because all the other animals tend to be quite wriggly. Yeah. You know, and then we've got this cultural taboo against rhythm, you know, and, and stuff in our culture. And so doing enough of the spinal undulations, systematic work with every part of the spine to at least unlock it so that people realize, wow, like I can move in all of these other ways because otherwise people just think that movement is the limbs doing stuff and it's kind of robotic. I use the metaphor of like a Lego Lego person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I try and work both ends. It's like you do the primate stuff and all of these games and wrestling and capoeira and parkour kind of things um, to at least be competent or at least competent enough to have fun with it. And then also do some of the other stuff because that kind of yeah, it gets the idea into people's bodies that 
they have a lot in common with all of these other creatures. Yeah. And then it unlocks ability to, to, to express with all the different parts of the of the of the spine. And also it, it unlocks all the different parts of the spine as a as a source of, of power in movement and agility. You know, people think of agility in terms of being able to move from side to side quickly, but even something like wrestling or jiu-jitsu or capoeira or even moving through through unpredictable environments in nature, you need to be able to contort. So um, yeah, that's I would never say that one's more important than the other. Mm-hmm. I'd say I like to train at both ends and work work through the middle and back and forth. Because what you find also is with the spinal undulations, the more you practice them, the more you realize that they're actually contained in movements like walking or jumping or throwing or hitting. And they can be hidden and not necessarily expressed in an exaggerated way, but they should be present. That wave, that wave of force transfer, I think, is one of the hallmarks of, of skillful, healthy, relaxed whole body power. Yeah. And a lot of people in our culture, like myself included, very much need to do a bit of systematic work through the whole spine in order to unlock that. Because otherwise, there'll be these bits that are frozen, mm-hmm. bits that are dark. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, doing this final investigations every day during a retreat was really interesting because uh, I found, um, you know, I've been working on my thoracic spine. I feel like I have a lot of limitation in my thoracic spine, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of computer work. Yeah. But I didn't realize how, like, tied down the rib cage and, um, and clavicles felt. You know, playing with some of the drills that we did. Yeah. It was like all of a sudden having this kinesthetic map of how tied down mm-hmm. certain aspects of my mm-hmm. body were. And that it could be a lot freer yeah. than what that would mean. Yeah. So I definitely, I'm really curious to do it. I haven't gone deep into this practice myself, um, but I think it's interesting. The the analogy that you came up with, or you mentioned of, of children's play, is one that's really interesting to me because I tend to think, okay, if kids do it all over the world, then it's something that was evolutionarily important. Yeah. And those are like where we should be harvesting kind of the most of our movement nutrition. Yeah. But then within that, there are these things that that just get lost or kinesthetically blind yeah. and we have to rebuild. Yeah. And, and this spinal stuff seems really, um, really vital to mm-hmm. the central axis of the Yeah. But uh, I also wanted to ask you, in reference to that, um, you know, this idea of the, the taboo mm-hmm. of movement in the spine. Mm-hmm. I have clients I've talked to, you know, really smart guys who have hurt their backs because they were so stuck in the neutral spine that they were unable to get out. There's a comedian who says, every culture has a neck thing, mm. except white people. Right. <laughs> They're the most unexpressive spines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the, the role of the spine in dance, mm-hmm. in, um, in various tribal situations, right? Yeah. Like classical European dance is incredibly rigid in the way that it expresses the spine. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious about your perception of how the spine and animal mimicry come out within the dance traditions of the yeah, 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 totally. So this is like, that's, that's another big part of this ancestral movement idea for me is that it's humans are mimics. Naturally, we're mimics. And if we look at um, any 
live in landscapes where they have to hunt and forage and things. It seems like, you know, I definitely could know enough to, to be sure that it's everywhere, but it seems like everyone, all of these groups have animal mimicry in their tents. Yeah. And in their storytelling, right? And that all of their dance and storytelling is about establishing their context, as in we live in this place with these other creatures that have these personalities and qualities, some of which we love, some of which we fear, you know, some of which we celebrate, some of which are funny and hilarious, but in because we're we're like physical theatre, this idea that physical theatre is much more ancient than language. Yeah. And verbal language. And so we've evolved to express through movement all of this stuff which we've only more recently learned to express through words. So like you're telling the story of a hunt, or you're telling the story of something that happened over there, or something, you know, somewhere else. And so you need to be able to mimic the movements of the kangaroo or the mouse or the river or you know the trees. And so we have this, this is this is where we get this this is the theory of why we have this ability to put our bodies into into shapes just for its own sake. You know, no other creature does that. You know, whereas we have this ability to put contort ourselves into the shapes of trees or the shapes of anything. And so, in recent times, as we've started living in more boxes and separating ourselves and separating ourselves more, and living in cities and and so on, we've we've come out of this this thing of thinking we need to separate ourselves from the other animals. You know, this is my theory on why Indian, uh, in the sort of Indian and in the Western traditions, they have this real emphasis on an upright spine. Mm-hmm. So that it's like, I'm not an animal, I'm different to the animals. Whereas in other cultures, they're consciously and deliberately mimicking all the things in their environment. And maybe in our, in our increasingly linear, box-like environment, we are unconsciously mimicking those, <laughs> those right angles and stuff instead and so part of this idea is that we we don't just need to practice we need we don't we can practice the movements which are contained in our own story in our own ancestry but then in the recent part of that in our ancestry you have this thing like and then we evolve to mimic all the other creatures in our local environments even in to mimic the creatures to take on the movements of the creatures in our mythology the forces of nature, you know, so it becomes huge, that's where it becomes infinite. Mm-hmm. So you can't just say that ancestral movement is moving like a monkey. It's like ancestral movement can be like moving like a made up god character or a rock, or you know what I mean? It's like, and that's part of our nature too. This is something I've been thinking about recently that I think is really interesting. You know, the, the easiest umbrella term to talk about what you do and what I do. And, various other people are working on this sort of natural movement. Um, that's the one that, that tends to resonate and, and be easiest for people to understand. Yeah. But trying to, to, to understand the nature of human movement independently of culture is in a sense it's ultimately impossible because the human mm-hmm. the nature of human movement is built on being a cultural animal. Yeah. And we we have this perception of ourselves as kind of um, unimpressive moving uh, movers, right? We're, we're not nearly as strong as a chimpanzee. Right. Or we're not as fast as a as a wolf, or pretty much any any quadrupedal animal. Um, but there's nothing in the 
in the world that can mimic everything that right. we can, nothing that can throw 90 mile an hour fastball yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. do giants on, on high bars. Yeah. There's something very interesting that happened in, in the evolution of the human being, mm -hmm. and there's this very interesting thing that we have to play with as natural movement mm -hmm. teachers of how we, um, how we try to get at the things that are sort of the base layers that really need to be taken care of, mm -hmm. while at the same time respecting that it has to be expressed within culture. Mm -hmm. Cultural expression is really important yeah. to actually moving in a natural way as a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think a big part of what we're doing, what I'm trying to do, and what you're trying to do as well, and lots of other people are as well, is actually create a culture of permission to explore. Yeah. You know, go like, yes, we're coming from our culture, and there's all this stuff which is generally not acceptable to do in public mm -hmm. as an adult. You know what I mean? Kids are allowed to crawl, kids are allowed to crawl to trees, adults are sort of like, oh, what are you doing? But if you have a few people doing it together, it's like, oh, they're doing a thing. It must be a thing because there's more than one of them. It's not a crazy person, it's like a few people, so I guess it's okay. And the more we can do that, then it gives other people permission to do it as well. And it's like, you know, so actually changing the culture. If you just do it on your own, then it's, it's going to be tough. You know, creating culture. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So within that, one of the things that you've touched on a number of times, and I really want to get into, was this this story aspect. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, we have this ability to to move, perhaps in some in some way, because we use it as a way of telling stories that became important to us, and we uh, we end up having stories about them. And one of the things that we're always really working with is the story that we create and the stories that we are maybe in contrast to, right? Mm -hmm. Because when we're looking at the fitness industry, when we're looking at various, um, you know, whatever fitness brands, essentially there's a there's a narrative mm -hmm. that people have started to have accepted about, if I do this, then I will get that, and that's what we're supposed to have, mm -hmm. whether it's abs or, you know. Yeah. And and I just want I was curious to uh, get you to speak a little bit about how you think about the the storytelling and in particular how you layer in this element of, of symbology and mythic into your teaching. Yeah. How you see that as reflective of uh, of this need for ancestral movement and, and really how you connect to this all that neurobiology and all that the concepts of world. That's okay, a big, big one, I'll great. Um, so, I guess one of the ideas is that, like, for us to even do something in the first place, it has to have some emotional resonance, right? If it's like, if you're just neutral about it, chances are you won't, you won't do it very much. Um, and if it makes you feel horrible, then you know you're even less likely to do it. So having like having a good story is, helps with the inspiration and with the um, why am I doing this again? It's like oh, that's right because this is like a cool story that makes sense to me um, and makes me feel excited or inspired or whatever. A lot of people think you know because we were calling that thing. In Canberra for years, we were calling it natural movement and ancestral movement, and a lot of people assume that the story 
Yeah. And then ancestral movement or whatever. And it's, it's a big thing to be like, you have to say what you're against. You have to say, I am here in opposition to this and this and this. And I'm not really against against anything like in terms of movement, you know what I mean? I pretty much think that like it's all if people are having fun with it, it's all cool or you know, everything's useful. But what I am trying to get at with with my work is something along the lines of the concept of ancestry and ecology and being at home in the world, that sense of rightness that seems to be prevalent in indigenous societies that are still living in their ancestral homeland, you know, and so this 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 mythic element or this symbolic element of like when you're doing you know when you're practicing the movements of the animals in your in your area like it's not like the story behind that being like this is like going to help your back pain that's like it might be really helpful, so I, I like that story as well. When we're doing spine modulations, it's like, yeah, like, look, if you learn to mobilize and strengthen and get awareness and relaxation and flexibility and expression in every segment of your spine, like, back and neck pain will be, like, much increasingly less and less of a problem for you to the point where they're not a problem anymore at all. And that might be a, a great hook for someone to be like, cool, I've got back pain that really annoys me and this is going to this is going to help, so that's awesome. But um, I think when we look at things that are going to change the brain, one of the prime drivers of neuroplasticity is emotion. The stronger the emotion, the more strongly the brain will change, for good or bad. You know, the stronger the fear and hatred and shame, the more the brain will wire to like be like. Don't do that. Don't do that. But also, the more powerful the emotional resonance in a, in a positive way, the more the brain will be attracted to it. The more the mind will be attracted to it, and then the more the brain goes, "Oh, this is emotionally relevant and important." And you know, you keep thinking about it a lot and a lot and a lot. So okay, we'll change to get better at that and do more of that. And it seems to me that a lot of the traditions which are working with brain changing, specifically, like the meditative traditions and the yogic traditions and the, um, a lot of these, um, even like shamanic healing kind of things where people are doing, you know, you can say it's the placebo effect, but again, the placebo effect works through emotional resonance. It's like you do some sort of big ritual with all the masks and song and dance and burning incense and smells and sounds and, and stuff and and stories of these powerful mythological characters and demons and benevolent forces and all of that. And it's like, whoa, it's like powerfully evocative stuff. And because it's powerfully evocative, it's going to bring about a stronger physiological change, like in your endocrine system and in your brain, and as it turns out, in your immune system. Yeah. And so I've been trying to work more and more with the mythological side and in this case, the mythology, the mythology of the culture that I've grown up in, which is that of evolution. Mm -hmm. The evolution of 
likes and the evolution of matter, um, you know, the whole Big Bang story and whatnot, um, which is just this huge, crazy, beautiful, detailed myth, and layering that myth into the experience of the body. So, so let me just inject quickly, sorry. It's a big question. Just, just to clarify, because I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. Yeah. When you talk about myth, you're talking about myth um, as a frame that creates a sense of awe. Mm. Because we also have this, mm. this. Uh, unfortunately, we've adopted myth as a way of saying something that's debunked and entirely untrue. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I just don't want anyone to get the impression that you're saying the big right. thing is a myth in that sense. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but that we can take a scientific um, model. Our, our best understanding of the way the universe works, mm -hmm. and we can invest in it mythic proportions. Absolutely. Rather than, than completely sort of uh, um, trying to be totally objective about it. Once, once we absorb it, we can use it mm. by giving it these resonance. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah totally. totally. So it's, it's funny in our culture also we have this tendency, I don't know about other cultures, I'm not speaking or about other books, but we have this tendency to like think that once we have learned a fact, that then that's done, we don't need to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that people's attitude towards evolution, the theory of evolution, um, you know, like Darwinism and genetics and all this sort of stuff is like people think that like, oh yeah, we understand that now, or someone understands that now, so whatever, I'm gonna get on with my day. And for me, it's like, I want to create and, and give other people some of what's like so amazing for me, which is like regular, daily, like deep contemplation of this, of this amazing story, which helps and gives insight into so much of our psychology and our, you know, everything, everything, absolutely everything. I forget the exact quote, but there's something about like nothing in science makes sense outside of Evolution. Human biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Yeah. Peter's, yeah. Peter's and Chansky. Right. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. And so it's using, because again, the other thing with the neurobiology, right, with this idea that neurons that fire together wire together, mm -hmm. means that, like, we have and are constantly wiring in stories from our culture, from our family, from our childhood, from the television, like, etc., into the maps of our bodies. And often those stories are not so nice, or you know, there's, there's shame, there's like self-worth issues in there, of like I'm not good enough, or I, should, I wish I was more like that. Or, um, and also that we've got, you know, from our, from our history, we've got all the stories of our past injuries, mm -hmm. and our sicknesses, and our weaknesses, and all of these things wired into our experience of our own bodies. And then, if that means we can go, well, okay, okay, we can also, we can also wire other things in there which make us like feel more awe or more beauty when we feel our own voices. This strikes me as a really profound point. This initially thing to me about once I've taken on this evolutionary perspective, this big picture take on human, is that it becomes about sort of rehabilitating human beings. It's um, it's starting to see things that are missing from the environment that are causing people to to not feel healthy, to not feel well, to not feel um, engaged by the world. And as you're talking about this element of story, it's really interesting to me because essentially you start to think of the stories as 
missing in the same way or not being cared for in the same way. Mm. We're constantly exposed to stories via the mainstream media, via the TV, via things that we read. But is there an attention and care for what those stories are intended to develop with mm. other beings? Mm. And, and in the sense, if we're trying to, this is what's interesting to me is that moving like a human being, it, it all, almost automatically sort of sets you on this path of thinking on this broader spectrum of how do you live like a human being? Mm -hmm. And this element of like, what are the stories you're absorbing? Mm -hmm. What's being wired into your body all yeah. the time? Yeah. And then how do you sort of take an element of control in that? In the same way you want to take an element of control in how your body moves. Right. right. Like your body is. We're sitting in chairs, which is funny. But uh, just uh, yeah. We've been in the bush, sitting in the, on the ground, so we're enjoying the chairs. Very natural. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know when we sit in chairs all the time, mm. you know the body gets stuck in a way that's really mm. not healthy for us. Mm. In the same way, when we sit in these stories mm. that we have as a culture, better mm. um, developed, you know, often just to sell us problems. Right. So I was curious just to get, you know, I, I wanted to, that idea was really interesting to me. It's like how this element of story crosses over from being just about um, how we invest more meaning and get more out of movement, but really about how we wire ourselves to be happier human beings and okay. kind of decondition ourselves away from things yeah, 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 that are yeah. making us miserable. Yeah. So I, I wanted to just kind of open that topic. Right. And I was curious if you, if you wanted to, to share any more of your thoughts about that. Well, just a simple, like, a simple attitude of celebration of life, of the, the beauty and, and awesomeness of life, and the, and an honest look at the, you know, what you can call the light and the dark, you know, that we are, that just, just a look at life involving Involving death, involving sickness, involving conflict, involving like love and nurturing and family and like you know beautiful, beautiful uh, the the whole the whole beauty of the world and and, and the basic story of us being at home here, you know what I mean? Rather than being aliens, there's this real thing of like a lot of humans, a lot of us today growing up in, in cities and whatnot, like had this sort of feeling of being an alien. People say like they feel disconnected from nature. And here in Australia, you know, it's normal for us not to know the names or uses or properties of the plants and things and the animals and like, you know, but like, you know, people who people who have never climbed a tree and that sort of thing. And so and we've got this culture of sort of general level of shame. Yeah. of being embodied, you know, the body is seen as disgusting, and, you know, body hair and like oils and, you know, all of this sort of stuff is like, the body is considered grotesque and, and so on, so this is like an attitude of covering it up and like getting rid of the hair and doing all these things, um, which can be fine, that can be a celebration too, you know what I mean? It can be a real celebration to like, something can smell nice and some nice clothes and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Stories that encourage better feelings <laughs> and better exploration, like better like use of the body. You know, if the body is celebrated as a as a as a wonderful gift, and then we can also celebrate 
its abilities of learning and playing and climbing and falling and dancing and all these sorts of other things. So that's sort of, I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, so this is a, a topic that's really interesting. One of the most profound things that you hear from people who practice parkour a lot, especially, um, especially women, yeah, a lot of men too, is that uh, it's one of the first places where they were able to invent, uh, sorry, it was one of the first, people, first places where they were able to develop a positive sense of self-worth yeah. their body. Yeah. But their body was was not a thing to that they were failing to mold to mm -hmm. meet some external standard, but it's something that was was helping them achieve something they were really engaged yeah. in. And I think this this is a really interesting topic within kind of what we're doing with natural lumina of essentially how we are helping people cultivate broad scale competencies that they can kind of invest some sense of self-worth in. Right. Yeah. And this is a story that is really uh, critical, I think, for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a major aspect of, of, I think, why we have these epidemics of anxiety and depression. Yeah. 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 So I wanted you to go into a little bit. One of the things that I found really interesting about uh, this past week working with you was how you were able to wrap a lot of the concepts that come out of the yoga tradition and the uh, Qigong tradition into a, um, a story, a myth, mm -hmm. um, but a very deeply evidence-led myth about, uh, about how they connect to neurobiology. Right. Talk about neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. Talk about, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, but yet your favorite word is mirror neurons, it seems like. Yeah, your favorite empathy, 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 yeah. And so there's this there's this interesting thing where I've started to really recognize that in my own work the external aspect of what we accomplish with the movement mm -hmm. is much less important than the internal aspect of how it changes us. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mountain Man going to say it's not what the man is the mountain, it's what the mountain is the man. Right. And I think this is the huge shift we need in our cultural perception of movement is that it's not about whether you can be the best at parkour, mm -hmm. the best at natural movement, the best at wrestling. Mm -hmm. It's about how those things can cultivate the best version of you mm -hmm. that you can be happy with. Mm -hmm. um, ooh, I got on a tangent there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I wanted you to just touch base and kind of explain to the audience how, how you see the yoga tradition and the Tai Chi tradition, at, or sorry, the Qigong tradition, as being really um, actually sophisticated ways of manipulating um, our neurobiology mm -hmm. to have a better internal experience of being a human being. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, so, we just start with the basic concept that the brain is plastic, that it changes according to how we use it. And then, we have that idea that our experience of our bodies changes according to not just what we do with our bodies, but how much attention we pay to all the different parts of our bodies and what kind of attention we pay. You know, if you're constantly focusing on a particular body part with hatred, then you'll build up uh, a tendency to experience hatred or negative emotions whenever you see or feel or think about that part of your body. And then because of the empathy systems in the brain, like including the, the, the mirror neurons and 
I, I sort of like, I, I talk about mirror neurons a bit, but like there's, there's controversy about the exact roles of mirror neurons and how much is, you know, that sort of thing. But at least we can say that there are these systems in our brains and our nervous systems for empathy, that we're wired for empathy, and that we tend to notice, or we tend to have empathic uh, perception of other bodies to the degree that we're sensitive to our own bodies. So what that means with the, with the mirror neuron uh, idea, the mirror neuron system, is that like the more developed your sensitivity is to your hands, for example, the more when you see another person doing things with your hands, you, the maps in your in the hand parts of your brain will fire as if it's your hands doing that, right? So you see someone scratching their head, and part of your brain fires as if you're scratching your head, so that your brain can make an impression of like, oh yeah, I think I know what it feels like to be that person. You know, if they're scared, then it's like you know they're scared, and it doesn't have to be a thinking about it. Like I think they're scared. You see their body language, and your brain responds, and your own body creates a, an impression of what it would feel like to be that, and goes, that would be scary, that person's scared. You know, so we're feeling, the basic idea is that we're feeling other bodies as if they're our own body all the time, to a yeah. like, low degree. And then because of neuroplasticity, the more developed our maps of our own bodies are, the more we feel other bodies. So for example, if you have a really poorly developed map of your spine, you get what they call, uh, people in, in neuroscience who study this, they call it smudging. You get smudging of the body maps in your, of your spine, which, as an aside, gives you a greater tendency to a chronic pain mm -hmm. in those maps because you can't differentiate exactly which part's painful and which not, which isn't, and so you think, oh, the whole thing's painful. Yeah. So a more detailed, less smudged body map of, of your spine will then give you much more of an empathic response, a feeling in your own body of the more detailed movements of other people's spines. So when you're learning a type of dance, for example, or when people go to learn Chinese martial arts or Tai Chi, they start off and they mimic the movements of the hands and feet. And they often, if they see someone do a movement and they put their hands and feet somewhere quite different because their maps of their hands and feet aren't as developed yet. But they tend to miss all of the stuff that's going on in the spine of the person demonstrating, largely because they don't have detailed maps of their own spines yet, right? So the yogic traditions and the meditation traditions and the Taoist traditions, they all have within them these, these streams of education of building up a detailed map of the central axis of the body. Um, and so that it might start with the spine, but then it works into the a detailed map of what's happening inside, starting with the breath. So noticing how how posture affects the mind, how different postures affect the mind, how changes in posture and muscular activity affect the mind, and how the mind affects them, feedback loops going in both directions. Then how the breath is affecting the mind. How is the breath affecting the mind and the emotions of your inhalation and exhalation, all the different kinds of inhalation and exhalation, up in the throat, up in the chest, deep in the belly, using the diaphragm, frozen diaphragm, just using the roots, all of these different variations. How does the breath influence the mind and emotions? And how are the mind and the emotions influencing the breath? And then how does the posture 
influence the breath? Does it restrict the breath in certain ways? You know, do different postures restrict the breath in certain ways? Do different postures open up the breath in certain ways? What are the feedback loops between these things going on all the time? And then how do we tweak them to gain more influence over them for different purposes? Those purposes can be to feel more energized, more powerful. Those purposes can be to feel more relaxed and more calm. Or, uh, you know, obviously for health as well. Like, like feeling, where am I chronically tense? Oh, am I chronically tense around my stomach? Does that have an emotional correlation? Um, you know, anxiety or, or something. And like, am I chronically tense around my throat? Or my, you know, deep in my abdomen? All these sorts of things. Like opening it up to awareness. And then you learn, oh, what we have in these systems, there's a, a way of using attention, emotion, posture, gesture, breath, voice, and, and symbols and myth to open up the most fundamental parts of the body to awareness of the self to awareness and the, the fact that mind and emotion are not separate from body and breath and posture and gesture and the functioning of the different organs you know the digestion affects emotion emotion affects digestion that there's feedback loops in both directions going on all the time between every organ every body system and posture and gesture and all these sorts of things all the time and so we can then work with that rather than being passive recipients of it we can cultivate emotion we can cultivate attention we can use the breath in all of these different ways to get particular desired results um, and then use like the muscular system and, and, and gravity and and myth and story and symbols and voice and all of these other things we can use them to change our experience of our own bodies to transform our minds slowly but surely you know very quickly in, in, in some some cases in, during certain periods but generally it's a like you know you might need to smash it a little bit at certain times but otherwise it's just as slow as these slow as they changing and also that this will then make us better communicators, both verbally and non-verbally, and also much more perceptive of the non-verbal world generally, like all the non-verbal signals that we're getting from other people, our bodies will be more attuned to that because if we're able to feel what's going on in our insides more clearly, we'll notice ourselves responding to other people and we'll also read their non-verbal cues better and better. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I can't like very deeply into the research here, but there's yeah. like, and I'm sure I have a tendency to cherry pick the research, like everyone. But I've been very convinced by like lots of reading, like a good sort of decade of reading, and lots of practice mm -hmm. that this is how it works. It was interesting because I, you know I've run into qigong and yoga practices at various times in my life, and mm -hmm. I'm a pretty skeptical person, and I come from a you know, very hard external sort of uh, background, hardcore, muay thai, BJJ. Um, and I, and I, I really, like it really worked for me the way that you taught the Qigong and you taught the, these concepts. 
because it fit a story that was already in my brain. Yeah. Right? Because I understand enough neurobiology that that's a language that that that's very convincing to me. Mm -hmm. But I also had this kind of interesting feeling while that was happening of like, theoretically, you should be able to get all the benefits mm -hmm. of these practices, mm -hmm. and people did get all the benefits of these practices without understanding the underlying mechanism of it, and that we. Uh, it's just this interesting thing that I'm playing with about how to be agnostic about things. Mm -hmm. And I, I was curious to, to connect that into the story of like, so I have all this, my stories are a lot around Western science and, and analytical stuff. And, yeah. and sometimes that can get in the way mm -hmm. of being open to things that are meaningful. Mm -hmm. the, um, so you do this exercise of having us wash uh, the body with the hands like this. Mm -hmm. You talked about how there's a lot of nerve endings in the palm, mm -hmm. the nerve endings here. You're, you're just helping your, your nervous system tune into those areas as you go through. Mm -hmm. And the, this helps you essentially get a better map, put active attention to, heal something. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is I worked with a, a psychologist a few years ago mm -hmm. who had the very same type of, of washing yeah. techniques yeah. that she wanted me to do, the yeah. energy washing. Right. But because she framed them in the chi yeah. mythology, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, right. you know, yeah. like, it was hard for me to actually pay attention to any signal that it was working or not, mm -hmm. especially because these things I think are fairly subtle. Yeah. Because it was. Batteries can lie. Okay. <laughs> because it was um, because it was framed in a, in a different set of myths. Right. In a different set of stories. Yeah. And I think this is a one of the very interesting things about recognizing the primacy of narrative and story right. and what we do yeah. is that um, we have to we have to recognize that the stories can can give us a lot of power yeah. but they can also really mislead us. Right. right? Like, as someone who comes from a Muay Thai BJJ background, like I've stayed away in some senses from Chinese martial arts mm -hmm. because I see a lot of sort of abuse of the story of chi yeah, and yeah, people yeah. can do things that, right. that I really don't believe can be done. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, we, you know, there, there's lots of investment. I see this, this tendency to invest in science mm -hmm. as, as a set of faiths, mm -hmm. rather than understanding that it's always updating mm -hmm. and that you have to be ready to update. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like if you're going to invest a tremendous amount of meaning in a specific sort of story that, that's derived from our scientific understanding. Mm -hmm. I need cultivate the, um, the agnosticism to be ready to update that story. Mm -hmm. once, we, once we invest in meaning, it's also like more invested mm -hmm. and it's harder to let go. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious how you kind of think about how we hold these stories in such a way that they strengthen us without binding us. Yeah. Yeah, I really like to, when I'm thinking about things and when I'm explaining things, to not like to say like not this is the limit of what's happening here but I can say that here's some things which there's a bunch of evidence to show is probably happening mm -hmm. so when we're doing this particular kinds of practice and we're you know we're changing our emotional state while we wash our awareness through the different parts of our body and then the evidence shows that neurons that fire together, wire together and so you can go, look, 
I'm not here to argue with anyone and say that there isn't, that there definitely isn't a magical energy being directed by our attention from the palms of our hands. Like that's just mostly a waste of time in my opinion. Well, all, what I can say is that here's a bunch of stuff which is likely to be happening. So you know, if someone says like, this guy pointed his hand at me from a distance and I felt things going on in my heart, I can go, yeah, here's a whole bunch of like, potential mechanisms through which that can totally happen, yeah. you know? And um, it's not saying, not trying to explain away things, but just go, look, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be crazy. It can just be like, yeah, man, like you, you feel it, you feel it because of, here's the, here's the mechanisms in the brain that allow your body to respond to things being done from a distance and those sorts of things. So it's... So this is, this is, I think, a really interesting thing. It's, okay, so if you believe in chi, mm. and I believe in chi, and I, and I interfere with your, your neurological fields and do this, you, you might feel something really Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And that can be profoundly real and meaningful to the individual. And yet someone who's not invested in that story, who's not part of that story, generally, I think, actually won't experience anything. Mm. I think this is a classic mistake that happens in martial arts. Mm -hmm. Is that um, students have a, this really powerful tendency to want to invest in the stories of their teachers, yeah. and um, and when we understand how how we're neurologically tuned to people, how we're empathic to people, um, it's easy to manipulate that in a context of a student-teacher relationship in a way that's not going to translate mm -hmm. to a street fight. Yeah, totally. Um, and it doesn't mean it's it's not a cool and interesting thing. Yeah. But I do think in this case the, the sort of neurological reframing of it mm -hmm. uh, helps understand the bounds of what's possible yeah. Yeah. in a way that's that's uh, potentially a lot more fruitful. Yeah. I really like being able to communicate with different people. You know, like yeah. for a while I was like deeply in the yoga world and deeply in the Chinese medicine world, and then eventually like realized that I should study the brain and that I've been afraid of studying the brain because I thought it was going to be too complicated and it turns out, you know, at least to get started, it's not that complicated to begin. And then I discovered that, like, the brain science helped me translate from one tradition to another, mm -hmm. from Western medicine to Chinese medicine, from yoga to um, psychology, you know what I mean? Like, all of these different things and then, like, neuropsychology and neuroanthropology and all these sorts of things is like, okay, cool, now I've got a thing that helps me translate. And that means I can communicate some really things that seem like fire out ideas from shamanic stuff or whatever. I can communicate that to a Western materialist, scientific, skeptical audience and be like, look, here's some stuff which is actually pretty plausible. You know, their description of the mechanisms might make no sense within our paradigm. But what they're doing, the practices, we can break them down and say, yeah, this is going to have these effects, quite likely because of mechanisms which we understand in neuroscience. And then it's not my job to convince those people that their stories are wrong, yeah. or that convince these people that they should take on their stories. I don't have to do that anymore. It just allows me to, to work as a bit of a bridge between cultures, yeah. um, which I think is, is quite valuable. I, I find it quite useful for myself because I was always attracted to these esoteric practices and I felt them like really strongly, really amazing doing meditation and doing qigong and stuff. But then the, ex the explanations didn't quite work for me. Mm -hmm. And so I had to translate for myself coming from a 
you know, Western scientific skeptical materialist uh, paradigm upbringing. And because I find it useful, it means that there are other people who find it useful as well. So that's sort of, yeah, yeah. part of my job. That's the job, son. Well, I know you have to go. You're uh, off to do another retreat, another mission to learn more about the world. Um, before you go, there are some audience questions. I apologize, audience. I'm not going to get to the audience questions. We had too much fun. Uh, we'll have to do this again. We'll have to do some other things. I did want to ask you just one, uh, one thing, which is uh, what would be the top five books to, uh, to start with understanding the the sign attacker of philosophy and such okay. philosophy. Um so luckily I've been asked this question before. <laughs> um, and I've got a couple that I can reel off. Uh, one great one is called The Body Has a Mind of Its Own by okay. Sandra Blakesley. It's about the, the neuroscience of body awareness. Another is uh, Your Inner Fish, the okay. 3.5 billion year history of the human body by Neil Shugan. Wonderful book. Uh, he's a paleontologist, so it's mm-hmm. like the the archaeology, the archaeological angle of what I'm what I'm doing with my with my with my body work. Uh, another really great one is the Developing Mind by Dan Siegel, uh, who who coined the term interpersonal neurobiology, on how the brain develops in relationship um, with other brains, you know, mm-hmm. primary caregiver, caregivers and in, in culture generally. Um, Jeez, what would be some other ones? Those three, I, it's, I can never say they're the best books, but that's like a, a great little little way to get started, I think. So you think from the, the meditative yoga tradition that you think really helps understand kind of the paradigm that you're sharing? Yeah, well, the body has a mind of its own is, is a good intro into, again, the neuroscience of body awareness and it crosses over massively to the meditation tradition. Stan Siegel's developing mind, um, and then his other book, Mindsight, is another great one um, for understanding the role of different kinds of meditation in changing the brain for personal growth and healing, but also for social and cultural and family uh, healing, but to be a like, more empathic parent or et cetera, et cetera. So Mindsight is another, another really good one. Good books on yoga are hard because it's like the really good books are way out of the realm of a beginner. And then the beginner's books tend to not really be that good. Yeah. So it's kind of harder to um, harder to give a, a good recommendation there. There's a lot of great mindfulness meditation manuals from within the Buddhist, like Theravada traditions. Um, uh, my favorite from the teacher whose tradition I first studied in is uh, this guy Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, and he's got a great book called uh, Mindfulness, The Mindfulness of Breathing, and another um, book on the same topic called the Anapanasati Sutra. But that's like a, that's like a five, six hundred page meditation manual, really going into the nitty gritty of like how to do it, what will happen when you do it. So if anyone's keen, like that's a, you can find free PDFs on the internet. But generally, no one. Generally, no one takes me up on that. I'm like the only guy who reads these ones and telling other people to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Restless Creatures. Um, yeah. Restless Creatures is a story of the human body and even Restless Creatures. I forget the author's name, but. Not yeah. really. Not really. Okay. Yeah. There's a bunch of these books about like the evolution of movement and, and so on, which go through the sort of layers of 
layers of evolution and how we can find them in our own bodies and how we can express them through movement. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, the That's camera fine. is about to die, so we better end it there. Um, hope you guys really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Simon. Really look forward to yeah. again. Thanks, Peter. Yeah.